So, Father, we come to you this morning to praise your name. We don't come here this morning for any other name except for the name at which one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To your glory. So, Father, would you set our hearts, would you set our minds on that moment? Would you set our hearts and our minds on that day, the day that we will be gathered together? How for day and night, for all of eternity, we will center on you and we will focus on you and we will give you the ultimate praise, honor, and glory that you and you alone deserve. Father, set our eyes on eternity to come. Set our eyes and our hearts on the coming of your son, Jesus. Prepare us for that day. So, Father, we ask now, will you take your word and very simply, will you use it to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ? Would its truth pierce our hearts and transform our minds? Would you sanctify us in the truth that you've spoken? Father, set our eyes, set our hearts, set our minds, set our desires on your affections. And may our affections be what you desire in our lives. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if you're not there already, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible uh, to Philippians chapter 1. If you're here with us today for the first time, uh, over the last couple weeks, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Philippians. It's something we're planning to do really all throughout the course of this fall. And so this morning we'll be picking up in verse 9 uh, where we left off um, last week. Uh, it's about 10 years ago this, this past summer uh, that Emily and I were preparing for our wedding. And um, we were, were not ones who had like a big, massive, extravagant wedding. We, we had a very simple wedding. Uh, it, was, it was still beautiful and we're incredibly grateful for the wedding that we had. But uh, we just did not put an inordinate amount of resources into um, our wedding day. And even with us taking a little bit more of a simple approach, we were still blown away by uh, just how much time and energy can go into the details and planning of your wedding day. So by the time you're pulling together everything for the venue and for the food and for what everybody's going to wear and for decorations, it can still be very, very time consuming. But uh, of all the time, energy, and resources that we spent um, up in that summer leading up to our wedding day, the one thing we are most glad uh, that we invested in was our period of premarital counseling. Uh, because we had a, a counselor who is, has been, remained a dear friend of us who really just pastored us and shepherded us through that season. And he gave us absolutely no Disney impressions about marriage whatsoever. I mean, from the very beginning, our very first session together, he was just really causing us to dig deep into what was going on in our hearts and our lives and our minds. Because he just made it clear to us. He said, listen, when you are in this, it is real. And so what happens a lot of times is we, we spend so much time relationship-wise gearing up for the wedding day. We, we pour so much time, energy, and focus into this. And we have this, this wedding day, and it's exciting, and it's awesome, and it's everything that we dreamed of. And it's followed up with this honeymoon phase. But then one day, it happens. The shoes get left in the wrong place. The towel doesn't get folded the right way. You didn't come home exactly when you said that you were going to come home. And, and then you learn very quickly, it's not just that issue. There's actually lots of little issues that this was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, and now it's, it's lots of things. And, and so it's not just this thing, it's also that thing, and that thing, and that thing, and that thing. A lot of these unspoken frustrations that have probably been pent up for a while, now it's all just getting unloaded like in a massive proportion, and it's probably happening in like a 700-square-foot apartment, and so there's not a lot of room to go. And you learn very quickly the hard way that the person that you married is a human being. 
And what happens a lot of times when it comes to approaching weddings, when it comes to approaching marriage, is that we, particularly in our culture, we do a whole lot to build up to the wedding day, but it's a very, very big difference between wanting to have a wedding and wanting to have a marriage. And one time, sometimes we can prepare for one without fully preparing for the other. And, and when it comes to us as followers of Jesus Christ, a lot of us could point back to a day. We could point back to a moment. We could point back to a single event where we made this conscious decision or we, we gave some sort of response where we said, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so depending on uh, the context you grew up in, maybe it was raising a hand, maybe it was walking an aisle, maybe it was praying a prayer, maybe it was filling out a card, maybe it was going through some sort of uh, denominational confirmation process. And you look back and you see the equivalent of a wedding day. You see a series of things that you went through, and then maybe even got baptized, so a lot like me wearing this wedding ring, you've got something to show that that happened. You've got some pictures from that, but when you, you look beyond that one single moment, it's, it's difficult to find a true semblance of a relationship and of marriage. And so for many of us as followers of Jesus, this is what happens, is we make this conscious effort, I'm going to follow Jesus, but then suddenly we scale back and we step back, and we forget that the work is at that point in time just getting started. And so what, what we're going to do today as we open up in Philippians chapter 1 is we're going to draw on a promise that we saw last week in Philippians 1.6. Paul gives this incredible promise where he says, I am sure of this, I'm confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And here's where we could go wrong is that we take a promise like that, this promise that God's going to finish the work that he started within us and, and then sort of step back and say, now my part's done. I really don't have to do anything. As long as I can point back to that moment that I walked the aisle, that I prayed the prayer, that I, I, I filled out the card, that I went through the class, as long as I have that, then I'm good. But what we're going to see today is that we still have a part to play in the role and the work that God is doing in our hearts and lives. And the way we're going to maintain our partnership together in that relationship that God has born within our hearts and is going to bring it completion is through a commitment to working through prayer. So those of you uh, who are following along in your notes this morning, uh, this is just a simple truth that we're going to see from these few verses this morning, is that our gospel-centered partnerships, we saw last week that we're partners in the gospel, are strengthened through gospel-centered prayer that intercedes for the love of the saints to the glory and praise of God. It's not just I made the decision to follow Jesus and now I step back and I no longer have any part to play. Uh, while the gospel is the message that God has chosen to bring out our work of salvation, the church is the means by which God is going to do that sanctifying work within us. And the way we maintain that partnership within the local church is by interceding for one another together in prayer. So let's read again uh, from Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is Paul's church, this is Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi. This is what he desires for these people, and this is specifically what he prays over them. So we see first this morning from Paul's prayer, love's awareness. See, love's awareness. He prays, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, uh, later on this fall, as we, we get into chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul also writes this book 
to address some relational division that was occurring within the body of Christ in Philippi. So uh, we saw this last week, like every single church in the New Testament, every single congregation that has ever existed in the history of Christianity has been full of broken and imperfect and hypocritical people. And as much as the Apostle Paul loves the church in Philippi, uh, they are not above his rebuke. Now, remember, Paul's writing this from prison. So this is a little bit risky for him to start really challenging them in their sin. And, and yet he's built this relationship with them. He's earned that right to speak into these things. And he addresses the relational division within the body. Charles Spurgeon has said of this passage that the one point in which the Philippians failed was love and unity among themselves. For this Paul prayed, for it is of first importance. So he's praying first and foremost for their love to abound, for their love to increase, for their love to overflow more and more. And if you're a grammar person, you pay really close attention. It's interesting that when he prays for love to abound, uh, love in this sentence doesn't have a direct object. So it doesn't say that your love for God would abound or your love uh, for neighbor would abound, that your love for your enemy would abound. It's just love in a general sense so we can safely assume in every capacity that our love would abound more and more and more. Does it make sense? Because if you look at the Old Testament, we find the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second one flows from that, love your neighbors yourself. This is the same structure with the Ten Commandments. The first few focus vertically on our relationship with God, and then the rest of the commandments focus horizontally on our relationship with one another. We work out our love for God through our relationship with one another. That's where it's made most evident. And so Paul is just praying very simply that their love their love for God, their love for neighbor, their love for enemy, their love for everyone, that it would abound, that it would overflow and increase. And he prays specifically that it's his prayer for their love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. He wants them to have a love that is aware. He wants them to have a love that's sensitive to each other's needs and is seeking to do what's the very best when it comes to their worship of God. So knowledge and discernment in a lot of ways are very much the same. Knowledge uh, is, is really focused more on uh, what it is that we can know between right and wrong. How do we distinguish between right and wrong? And so um, knowledge and, and discernment, very much the same in a lot of ways, but there's also a really key distinction that we need to pay attention to, and there's a reason that Paul prays they would have both. So again, while knowledge is going to help us determine what's right and what's wrong, knowledge, we can read God's word and we can discern from God's word uh, what is good and what's evil. Discernment doesn't just focus on what's right and what's wrong. Discernment focuses on what's good and what's best. Some have said of discernment uh, that it's the difference between knowing what's right and what's almost right. And so Paul is praying for the church in Philippi that they would know both. When it comes to their relationship for one another, they wouldn't just know the right way or the wrong way to treat one another, that they would truly seek God's best for each other. And that they would see God's best when it comes to their worship of God. So just a few examples of how knowledge and discernment might work out in our lives. Your knowledge will tell us that marriage is good. Discernment is asking the question, is this the very best person for me to marry? Knowledge tells us that work is good. Discernment is asking, is this the best job for me to take? Knowledge tells us that ministry is good. Discernment is asking, is this the very best opportunity for me to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ? This one's most important. Knowledge tells us that the word fine means good. Discernment, gentlemen, lets us know when our wife says that her day was fine, her day was most certainly not fine. That's discernment. That that's understanding the difference. And so when it comes to our relationship with one another, we don't just want to know, hey, what's, what's the right way or the wrong way to treat this person? We want to do the work of, of building intimate relationship with one another so that we can truly seek what is best for each other. And not what I think is best for you, but what God thinks is best for you and what it is that you actually need so that I can best serve you and not imposing my own definition of what that is. 
when it comes to our worship of God. We don't just want to know as we come together and worship or as we're privately worshiping the Lord on our own in our homes. We don't just want to know what's the right way to worship, what's the wrong way to worship. We want to be asking, what's the best way to worship? What will most bring glory and honor to praise to God in my worship? And so we intercede for one another that our hearts would burn with affection for the Lord and in relation to one another. Second, we see love's approval. Paul prays here for their love to abound more and more. It's verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. Now, uh, this word approve in this context and culture is a very important word. This uh, same term was used for the, uh, to really talk about a process of testing. And so in this specific context, uh, this word was used to talk about the testing of metals or the testing of coins to determine counterfeit from authentic or to test works of pottery. Uh, oftentimes in this culture, you would have uh, dishonest traders. They would um, have uh, pieces of pottery that they put together, and they might have cracks in them. And one of the ways that they would fill up the cracks in the pottery that they had built was they'd take candle wax and pour it into it. And uh, so as people were shopping, as they were walking along, what they would do is they picked up a piece of pottery, is they'd try to hold it up to the sun or try to hold it up to light, and they would be looking for just the glaze of wax that might have been used to fill up the piece of pottery. Because if so, that's a bad piece, and they shouldn't pick it up. And so, so this is really uh, piggybacking off of where Paul talks about praying for knowledge and discernment. For one another, again, that we would know what's real uh, from what's um, uh, from, from what's fake. And so, um, if this is uh, in again coming to relationships and marriage, we don't just need to be constantly asking the question. Again, is this good uh, for my spouse? Is this bad for my spouse? We want to be asking what's best for them. When it's parenting, we don't just want to ask what's good for our kids. We want to ask what's best for our kids. With our finances, we don't just want to make good decisions. We want to make the best decisions, and we want to do this work of deciphering what is true love from what is fake love. What is my own definition of love versus what is God's definition of love? And so within the local church, we filter every relational decision that we're making one another through this process of testing so that we can determine what's of the highest value and highest quality out of love for God and our neighbor. But this process of testing and approval also pertains to the doctrinal purity of the church. Let's look for a second at uh, Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. This is how Paul challenges the church at Rome. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, let's pause here for just a second. This is a really important verse because you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are living in this really unique cultural moment within the church where those who are going to stand firm on truth, those who, who are going to stand firm on the truth of God's word, who are going to say things, we looked at some of these last week, like Jesus Christ exclusively is the only way of salvation. We're going to hold with the closed fist things like the inerrancy of scripture. We're going to hold with the closed fist things like the virgin birth. We're going to hold with the closed fist like the miraculous works of Jesus in the New Testament. We're going to hold with a closed fist the definition biblically of what a marriage is, where we're going to be accused right now in the cultural moment we're living in of being divisive. Why are you clinging so tightly to that? That causes division within the body. And this is an important distinction because in Romans 16, Paul does not call those who cling to truth divisive. He calls those who have departed the truth as being divisive. It's not those who are simply standing in the revealed truth of God's word who are being divisive. It's those who have departed from the truth of God's word who have first and foremost caused the division. Our simple posture and the, the approach that we take when it comes to God's word is to simply approve what it says. We're giving approval to what it says. We affirm what it says. And it's not causing division to simply believe what Christians believe. It's those who depart from truth who are causing the division. So he says in verse 18, he says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, 
just makes it clear that fundamentally this is a rebellion against God, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in our relationships with one another, in our worship of God, in our doctrine within the church, we seek to approve what is excellent. Not just what's right from what's wrong, not just what's good from what's evil. What is the very best way to serve one another? What is the very best way to worship the God that we serve? Third, Paul shows us love's authenticity. He, he, he's praying here that you will approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. This is authentic. This is the piece of pottery with no cracks in it whatsoever. This isn't the counterfeit. This isn't the superficial jar that's pulled together. That we would be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Now, if you go back just two weeks where we started uh, this, this message series a couple weeks ago, or even just look back a few verses in your Bible at verses 1 and 2, how does Paul address the believers in Philippi? What does he call them? calls them saints. calls them saints. But we saw a couple weeks ago this word saints just means holy ones. And we saw that this identity is not reserved just for a class of super Christians, of people who have just lived a spectacular life for God and have built up this incredible spiritual resume and have now been canonized together with saints. Saint is the designation in the New Testament that is given to every single person who's a follower of Christ. Because we don't earn this designation on our own. God's word's clear, like we don't have any holiness of our own, we don't have any righteousness of our own, but it's not on the merit of our good works, it's not on the merit of, of our spiritual resume, it is because Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life, and because we can turn from our sins and we can put our faith in his perfect sinless life, it's on the basis of this that we can be called saints. The gospel tells us that, that God's wrath against sin, the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that we deserved for our sin, it was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, who stood and died not just for us in a generic sense, but died in place of us. He died instead of us. He was a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. So the fullness of God's wrath was absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross so that every one of us who by faith turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be confident that we've been made holy and blameless in the eyes of God. This is the good news. We get to rest in the confidence of knowing that God's wrath is no longer against us, that we now have his favor and we now have his approval and we can claim these titles of being holy and blameless not because of what we've done but because of what Christ has done. We get to stand in the confidence of these promises. No matter how great, no matter how deep, no matter how heinous, no matter how despicable our sin, there is nothing that we have done that cannot be covered by the blood of the cross. And we get to rest in the perfect work of Jesus Christ and knowing that we're holy and blameless in his sight. And the only way to be truly authentic in this faith, the only way to have truly authentic love is to have fully turned from our sin and surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ. And so we saw last week this work of sanctification that he does. It's something that's both instantaneous in our lives and it's progressive. So it's instantaneous and at the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are, as we saw last week, you are justified. You are blameless in the eyes of God. You are no longer seen through the lenses of sin but through the perfection of Jesus. And yet this work of sanctification is also progressive. 
God starts the work in us, and he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it's ongoing, where we are day by day progressively being conformed more into the image of Christ. Church, it's such a simple prayer for all of us to learn to pray every single day. Father, today, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like your son, Jesus Christ. Make me less like myself. Make me less like my sin. Make me like Jesus. And friend, I promise you, that is a prayer that God is eager to answer. Because it's his desire that we be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's really important we not overlook this detail because it's our prayer that Paul shows that we wouldn't just be pure and blameless for the sake of being pure and blameless. That we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We're looking toward a day when we will stand before him, the just judge of the universe, and we will give account for our lives. And so it's our aim, it is our desire that we would be prepared for that moment. You know, if, I, if I could just wrap it up into one sentence, like what is my role as a pastor? My role is to make sure you are prepared for that moment. If, if I just could just sum it up in one sentence, it's my role, it's my ambition, it's my aim that you, follower of Jesus, would confidently stand before God in eternity because I'm going to give account for how I pointed you to him. And so it's my desire above anything else. It's, it's the same as Paul's prayer right here is that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That you could live and stand in the here and now, confident in your salvation. That you would day by day be progressively formed into the image of God. That we would be striving after the holiness that God has made available for us through the blood of Jesus. And that you can fully, confidently, with joy stand before him in eternity. This is our goal. This is our desire. This is what we should all be pushing each other to as followers of Christ. But, you know, a few decades back we saw... Uh, in our church culture, the birth of a movement uh, that's become known a little bit more shorthand as either uh, the seeker-sensitive or, uh, or just the seeker-sensitive uh, sens- seeker church or the seeker-friendly church. And um, leaders of this movement very, very rightly saw a bit of a problem. This is uh, kind of mid-80s and especially through the 90s. And this is the problem that they saw, is, is that in increasing numbers, uh, professing followers of Jesus or even just the culture at large in the United States, they no longer saw the Bible as having relevance in their lives. No longer saw the church as really having relevance in their lives. No, no longer really saw faith as having any sort of place in our lives. And so they rightly saw this was a bit of a problem. But then uh, they sort of went too far on the opposite end of the pendulum. Because what started to happen was uh, instead of there being biblical teaching that addressed our lives in the context of Scripture, uh, it was more of a shift into this topical teaching that addressed our lives through the context and the lenses of the culture. Instead of putting the Bible in the driver's seat, we put the culture in the driver's seat. And we said, hey, we're going to address the real problems that people are going through in their lives. And listen, yes and amen. Like, we need to be able to take the uh, deep theological truths of Scripture, and we need to bring them down into practical, real-world application. We see Jesus do this. We see the apostles do this. Uh, We see this happening all throughout the course of church history. Yes, we need to be able to talk about things that are relevant to our lives, but we have to do this in the context of Scripture because what happens is if you you disconnect from the context of Scripture, we just start addressing things, the felt needs of the here and now, what we end up doing is, is having a bunch of people who know how to live good lives here on earth but are not prepared for the eternity to come. Our goal is not just that we would be pure and blameless in the here and now. Our goal would be that we'd be pure and blameless in the there and then. That we stand before God at the coming of Christ. That we be ready and prepared for that day. And you want to know how to discern what a generation really believes about the return of Jesus? Turn on your radio this week, Christian radio, and listen to the songs that are playing. 
And this is what you'll find in the 21st century. It's, it's a lot of music that focuses on how Jesus is making me feel in the here and now. And there's very, very little attention about the coming re- return of Jesus Christ. So just have to take honest evaluation. Am I truly looking towards eternity? Am I truly turning my eyes and my heart to the fact that one day Jesus Christ is going to return? How many of us, I mean, just in the midst of the chaos of 2020, we're we're so focused on what's happening in this hour and the the next news update and what's happening on this day and this day. And and truthfully, most of us are, are just trying to survive from one day to the next. Church, how often have we paused and stopped to remind ourselves one day Christ will return? One day Christ is going to come and right all of the wrong of of this earth. I don't know about you, but I have longed for that day more this year than any point in time in my life. I'm reminded more and more and more just how incapable the systems and the structures and the things of this world are at saving us. And the Lord's given us this incredible opportunity this year to be reminded of the reality of his coming, to be reminded that he's the one who can save us, that nothing in this world can save us, but that he can. But how many of us have simply looked past the coming return of Jesus just to be focused in the here and now? We want real, authentic faith right now so that we can stand holy and blameless before him in the coming judgment. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles for just a second to Matthew chapter 25, and uh, this is a bit of a longer passage, um, but I, I think it's important that we read the whole thing, and that we talk about why it is that we do focus so heavily on ensuring that our faith is genuine and authentic. And the reason for this is because the day is coming when Christ will come to divide genuine faith from superficial faith. He will come to divide those who were truly his from those who were almost his. He's going to come to divide those who are in Christ and those who were only in church. We need to pay very close attention here to the words of Jesus because he's going to do this discerning work as the shepherd. This is Matthew 25, 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him... We'll be gathered to all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll take place, the, he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those in his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We do this work of discerning what is authentic from what's superficial in this life because Christ is coming to discern the authentic and the superficial in eternity to come. None of us will escape this. None of us will escape this. 
We can spend a lifetime fooling those around us. We can spend a lifetime fooling ourselves, fooling our friends, fooling our family. Christ knows who belongs to him. And so our prayer for one another, our desire is that we would know, that we would discern what is real faith from what is superficial faith. And we would compel one another and challenge one another to search ourselves and to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ so that we could be found pure and blameless in his sight. Fourth, Paul shows us love's abundance. He prays that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, how can we determine what is authentic from what's superficial? How can we determine what is truly belonging to Jesus and those who don't belong to Jesus? Well, uh, Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul sets it up like this. He, he shows and he distinguishes the works of the flesh from the fruit of the Spirit. He says, these are the things of the world and these are the things of God. Here's what he says in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So he says, these are the things that are obviously not of the Lord. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these because Paul knows how creative we can be with sin. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's important we pay attention. Paul does not say those who have done such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's not saying, hey, if you've ever committed any of these sins, you can never inherit the kingdom of God because otherwise we're all in trouble. Like there's something on this list that touches every single one of us in this room. He's not saying if you've done these things, what he's talking about here is an ongoing progressive pattern of life. Like what, what, is, what is the highlight reel of your life? Like what is the ongoing pattern? What is made evident? And, and so he's, he's, call, he's compelling us just to take an honest evaluation of ourselves, take an inventory of what's happening and say, which one of these marks my pattern of life? But it doesn't just leave us hanging. He says, but this is the fruit of the Spirit. And in Philippians 1, this is what he's talking about us being filled with. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He says it does nothing to violate the law of God when we live in these things, in these fruits. And he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To be a follower of Christ is not to have lived a sinless life. To be a follower of Christ means to have faith in a sinless Savior. In the pattern of life Paul is calling us to, he's saying, what is the ongoing pattern of your life? Is it an ongoing pattern of walking in sin, of rebellion against God? Is it an ongoing pattern of feeling no conviction for your sin, no remorse from your sin? Is it an ongoing pattern of participating in the things of this world? Or have you crucified your sin at the cross of Jesus Christ? Been filled with his spirit, made evident by his fruit in your life. Jesus says as much in Luke 6.43, he says, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So again, we ask the question, how can I know my faith is authentic, or should I be worried that my faith is superficial? Our answer according to Christ and to Paul is by asking the question, what is overflowing from my heart and from my life in abundance. It's whatever's coming out in abundance, we can be evident is what is really controlling our hearts. So do our hearts overflow with the fruit of the Spirit, or do our hearts and our lives overflow with the works of the flesh? And church, here's the reality of our sinful condition. We have no righteousness of our own. 
There's nothing that we bring to the table. There's no amount of good works. Like we can't just conjure up the fruits of the Spirit by ourselves, work it out in our own strength and power, and think that we're going to stand before God on the day of judgment and be good. This is only a work that can be born by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But it's through the blood of Jesus that we're made righteous in the eyes of God through the perfection of Christ. And then the righteousness and the perfection of Christ gives birth to new desires in our hearts. And then those new desires give birth to the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. John Piper has said this, and I think it's such an important distinction we need to make this morning. He says the most basic distinction between the body of Christ and the world is not godly decisions, it is not good deeds, not genuine doctrines, but glad delights in the glory, beauty, excellence, and marvelous mercies of God. You know, I don't know about you, but I've gotten to the place where within our culture, particularly here in the South, um, I almost never ask anybody if they're a Christian. It's just, it's a word that has, uh, and especially now it's become even so politicized. What does it mean to, to, to be a Christian? It's a word that's sort of become a junk drawer term. I mean, pretty much everybody or most of our culture, the majority of our country embraces this term in at least some capacity. I think that's a pretty uh, useless question, honestly, in our current cultural context. But here's a much better question all of us can ask. Is Jesus Christ your greatest treasure? Is your soul happy in God? Because so many of us can point to the wedding day. So many of us can point to the wedding day. So many of us can point to the point of decision. So many of us can point to that one single experience. But just because we have a wedding doesn't mean we have a marriage. And this is the same is true when it comes to our faith. Just because we have something we can point back to and say, I did this thing on this day at this time. I went through the class. I raised my hand. I walked the aisle. I filled out the card. Whatever it is, you might have had the moment of decision. But the true test of authenticity is whether or not your delight is first and foremost in Jesus Christ above all else. Do you treasure Christ above everything else in this world? Can can you look at Jesus Christ and confidently say he's the one thing, he's the one person, he's the one reality in this world that I simply cannot live without? And does your heart overflow with the abundance of joy of knowing him? It's a pretty simple question. How can I know if I'm a true follower of Christ or do you not? Are you happy with Jesus? Is your heart happy in him? Are you content in him? Do you have joy in him? Because we don't determine whether or not we're Christians based on whether or not we've made a decision. We determine whether or not we're Christians based on whether or not we have delight in Christ. Is he your greatest joy? And is he your greatest treasure? And so this is our prayer for one another. That our hearts would overflow with the fruit of the Spirit and joy in Jesus Christ. And last, Paul shows us here love's aim. Paul prays that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's to this end. To the glory and praise of God. You know, this is the first question that we find in the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Probably some of you grew up in a, a denominational tradition or maybe you memorized this and, and maybe even still work through it today. I praise God for that. That's an incredible resource uh, to be able to center yourself on truth. But it's the first question that, that's a part of that catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the response is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So it's, it's not just to glorify him in this begrudging submission of worship. Like I'm just going to show up and I'm going to check the box and I'm going to do the things so that maybe God will stay happy with me. No, it's, it's not just to bring him glory with our lives. It's that we actually enjoy bringing him glory. 
And, and we find that through treasuring Jesus Christ is where we find our greatest joy. And so this is the aim of our prayers. That because ultimately this is the aim of our lives. That this is where it's all going. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. Church, we're going to see it here in just a couple of weeks in Philippians chapter 2. We need to understand this reality that one day, the day is coming where every single knee, whether you are willing or unwilling, friend, we will bow and we will confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. That moment is coming where we're going to stand before him and we are going, whether we want to or not, to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. And the moment's coming, it's going to climax in eternity where all of us center on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And day and night, forever and ever, it's going to be singing praise to his holy name. So the reason why we, when we come together, we sing songs like we just sang a few moments ago. You sing that chorus, I'll praise the name. The reason you start feeling it in all the feels, you know what I'm talking about? Like the reason you, you kind of get those tinglys and the reason you get tears in your eyes and the reason you have moments where you're like, man, I could just stay right here and sing this over and over and over again and, and bottle it up on Sunday morning and take sips of it all during the course of the week. The reason we feel this way is because you're tasting eternity. Do you understand this? The, the reason we feel this, the reason we experience this, the reason we know this is because that's what we will be doing for eternity. And so the reason we throw our lives into giving God praise, into giving him glory, into giving him honor, is because we are for that second glimpsing what we're going to do day and night for eternity to come. We set our hearts and our minds on that day, and it's by bringing him glory we're going to find our greatest joy. And so God's word calls us to, to aim to that end, that we would be people who, with everything we do, seek to bring praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And so, man, my challenge for us as a church, James, the one single application point I just want to give us this week, so simply, is to pray these words over one another. This is how we maintain this gospel partnership. It's through this foundation of prayer. It's through interceding with one another. And so uh, we've seen five primary areas of focus that Paul uh, gives in this particular prayer, what should our, what should our love be doing? And, 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 and so uh, we want to pray these things and intercede for one another with these things throughout the course of the week. So uh, if you look in, in your notes, those of you in the room, those of you watching online, we're going to send this out via email. But take out that note sheet, even if you've not been scribbling on it. Uh, just look at that here for just a second. Everybody pull that out real quick. And what you're going to find uh, is, uh, is a five-day prayer focus for this coming week. And this is just a challenge I want to give us as a church family. And so community group leaders, man, I challenge you guys, pray this together as a group this week. And then all of us individually with our time with the Lord, uh, even if it's just the one line that's here, uh, just spend some time praying this for your brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the course this week. So Monday, yeah, very simply, we want to pray that we would abound in love and that we would grow in knowledge and discernment. Tuesday, we want to pray that we would approve what is excellent and seek the best in our worship of the Lord and in our service toward each other. Wednesday, we want to pray that our love for Christ would be authentic and that we would be pure and blameless in his sight. Thursday, we want to pray that our hearts would overflow with the abundant fruit of the Spirit we would not walk in the works of the flesh. And then Friday, we want to pray that we would live wholeheartedly for the glory of God and set our eyes on the day of Christ coming. We want to set our eyes on the day when Jesus Christ is going to return. And church, make absolutely no mistake, Christ is going to return. He's not going to fall down on his promise. That there's not one word of this word that has remained unfulfilled. Jesus Christ is going to come. And so the question this morning is not whether or not Christ is going to come. The question this morning is whether or not he's coming for you. 
And the day is going to come. We have to recognize the day is going to come. He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He's going to separate the truly saved from the almost saved. He's going to separate those who are in Christ from those who have only been in church. He's going to know the difference. The Lord knows those who belong to him. And the day's going to come, either through his returning or through our death, and we stand before the just judge of the universe, we're going to give account. And it's only those who have been made pure and blameless in his sight who are going to receive the pleasure of everlasting eternity with him, with the rest of us being cast into judgment. So this day and this moment is going to come. The question is not whether or not he's coming. The question is whether or not he's coming for you. But here's the good news this morning. You don't have to stand in fear of that day. You, you do not have to stand. It, man, it blows my mind. I had a conversation with, with a few folks, uh, not within our church. This was uh, up in North Carolina. And there's, you know, North Carolina, they can be sketchy people. And so I had a conversation with them. Uh, a couple, I'm from there, I can say that. And so I talked with some of them several weeks ago. And they're talking with all this fear like, oh, well, man, this is happening in 2020, and this with the election, and, and this with the economy, and, and man, like, this is getting scary. This is getting scary. It means the Lord's probably coming back soon. I'm like, why is that scary? Like, we're supposed to pray for this day. We're supposed to long for this day. This should be the one day that we should most anticipate is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us from the brokenness and the bondage of this world. The only reason to fear this day is if you are not in Christ. It always amazes me as, as Christians study the book of Revelation, there's this obsession. What is the mark of the beast? I'm so scared. It, it amazes me it, as you study the book of Revelation. You know what you almost never hear anybody talk about is the mark of the lamb. How many of you knew that this was even a thing? And this is the central focus of the book is that those who belong to Jesus Christ have no fear of these things. We have no fear whatsoever if we've been marked by Christ. And so we look to the day of the Lord, not with fear, but with joy and anticipation and excitement. Because we know that it's not our good deeds that are going to make us pure and blameless in his sight. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. The question isn't whether or not he's coming. The question is whether or not he's coming for you. Will you be found pure and blameless through faith in Jesus Christ on the day of his coming? Just bow your heads with me here, here for just a moment as we, we close things up this morning. In, in just a second, I'm, I'm going to lead us in, in just a moment of, of prayer. And, um, but I want to just take a second to explain something because I don't want there to be any confusion whatsoever about what's about to happen in the room here in just a second. This isn't um, something that we do every single week as a church family, but particularly just on the truth that we see in God's word today and this, this urgency I think we should all be feeling for the day and the return of Christ. This morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that good news. Whether you are in the church today for the very first time in your life, maybe you have been in the church for your entire life, but, but you feel far from Christ. Maybe there was a wedding, but there's never really been a marriage made a decision to follow Jesus, but there's never really been delight in Jesus. And you might claim to be a Christian, but Christ maybe is not your greatest treasure. In just a second, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to this gospel, to this good news. And, and listen, we're, we're not going to stand up here and poke and prod, manipulate and plead and, and try to coerce you whatsoever, but what we're going to give you the opportunity to do is to stand up in this room and to say, I want Jesus Christ to be my greatest treasure. 
and then we're going to just invite you for, for a moment to, to remain standing. The rest of us are going to celebrate you. And this is not to single you out. This is not to shame you, to embarrass you. This is the safest place you will ever follow Jesus in your life. This is to celebrate the work that God's doing in you. We celebrated uh, at the beginning of our service two young men who publicly went out with their faith last week through baptism. And that's our desire for you is that you would find true treasure in Jesus Christ, that you would find everlasting, invincible joy in Christ. And we want to give you the opportunity to profess that faith here today. And so again, listen, maybe you're here today for the very first time as you've never been in the church. Maybe it's your first time in a long time in the church. You wouldn't necessarily claim to be a follower of Christ. Today, we want to extend that opportunity to you to find family in Jesus Christ, to find salvation in Jesus Christ, to find joy in Jesus Christ. Again, maybe you've been in the church your whole life and maybe there was a wedding, but there's never been a marriage. There's never been true relationship. There's never been anything that really marks that Jesus Christ is the greatest joy and treasure of your life. And if you're in either one of those groups this morning, in just a second, we're gonna give you the opportunity to just slip up your hand. And then we wanna celebrate you and we wanna let our prayer team pray for you in just a moment, help you with some next steps. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. Nothing to be embarrassed of here. We wanna celebrate that if that's you as a church family. And if not, we'll celebrate that we have security in Christ and that all of us in this room live in that confidence. So if that's you today, either, either one of those groups, say, I want to become a follower of Christ, or even saying, hey, Taylor, I've been claiming to be a Christian, but I've had no true relationship with Christ. I want to find that today. If that's you this morning, would you just slip up your hand across the room? As kids, maybe talk, talk to your parents. If, if they're with you, students, this could be you. Adults in this room. Praise God for, for the work that he's doing in our hearts and in our lives today. So let's pray, and then we'll sing together as we close. Father, thank you for the confidence that you have given us today, that you are working within us to mold us and to make us more like your son, Jesus, to transform us from one more degree of glory to the next. God, continue working in our hearts and our lives, Father, that we would not be so locked in on the temporary things that we lose sight of the fact that you are coming. Renew our urgency with the message of the gospel to share this message with those who do not know you, who have not found salvation in your name. Father, today for those who have, Lord, fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit that it would overflow fruit in their lives as you make them more like Jesus until the day of his coming. So Father, be honored, be glorified this morning as we sing, as we praise your name. And embolden us to go from this place today, confident in the message that you've given us. Salvation in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. And everyone said, amen. And church family, let's sing, 